0: turn with me to psalm 24 psalm 24 and we'll be there in just a few minutes as you're turning to psalm 24 i want to make reference to luke chapter 5 in luke chapter 5 the lord jesus is calling several of his disciples to follow after him and this calling concludes with really a stunning finale and the, the focus here is especially on James and John, who were part of a prosperous and wealthy family fishing business. After showing them his power through a miraculous catch of fish, Jesus said to Simon Peter, who was with him, who was also a partner in the business, he said, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. The famous, you will become fishers of men. But here's the the finale, the, the really striking finish to that whole exchange. Luke chapter 5, verse 11 says, And when they had brought their nets, brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. They left everything. Now, certainly that's not a prerequisite for salvation, the giving up of all earthly possessions, but there is a prerequisite of giving up your claim on everything. Everything that you think you own, anything which you think could keep you from following Christ, you have to give it up that's what following christ is and that's really what we would like to address in the in the coming weeks the heart attitude of giving up all things for the sake of christ in the most tangible way that we're called in scripture to demonstrate that fact that heart attitude is with the financial offerings we give to the lord and to his work and so over the coming weeks we're going to examine what you now know we're calling joyful generosity this is our response to god's grace to speak about the joy of the believer in Christ to contribute financially to kingdom work, particularly to the frontline kingdom work. The front-line is always the local church, always has been, always will be. And our focus specifically is on our need for a new facility, which I outlined in detail Friday night at our banquet. So I'm going to take the next seven messages, the next seven weeks, to give you seven reasons to give from the Bible, seven reasons we give to the Lord. Now, admittedly, I'm going to leave one reason out. And it's an important one, but I'm leaving it out because if I put it in there, it would sort of make this series irrelevant. So let me tell you what the whole reason that I'm leaving out is. The reason that we'll leave out to give is that you're commanded to do so. And in essence, I ought to be able to say the word of God says you were to give financially. End of sentence there. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The idea of not reluctantly or under compulsion, this is often misunderstood to mean, Pastor, you shouldn't preach on giving because you're trying to cause compulsion. Wrong. I'm trying to cause obedience. Compulsion is when you put things in the offering plate or in the offering bag with a bad attitude. That's compulsion. We would never want compulsion you only give if you, it doesn't mean you only give if you want to, it means you give with a cheerful heart, not the reluctant heart. Now, if this morning happens to be your first Sunday at Grace Bible Church and you feel like you just won the negative lottery because we're preaching on giving, don't worry, we're not going to ask you for money. That is up to the members of Grace Bible Church to take care of. And I do know I'm very much preaching to the choir because on average, the members of Grace give significantly more per person than national average. And so we're thankful for that. So why even talk about this? Well, we want to be like the church at Thessalonica, which the Apostle Paul said was an incredibly loving church. And he said, but you should excel still more. If you're good, be great. And that's what we want to do. Now, before we really get rolling this morning, I want to take a little time to get our minds thinking in this direction and to introduce this series. I want to share some thoughts with you in a couple of directions, and then we'll get to two main texts that we're going to look at this morning. So here's some introductory thoughts. I'm going to, I want to talk about preaching on giving. I want to talk about misunderstandings about giving. I want to talk about worship and giving and cynicism about giving. And, and we'll just touch on these briefly to get our minds immersed in this topic. First of all, preaching on giving. There seems at times to be a reflex, knee-jerk reaction to preaching on giving because it feels so very personal. I have, to my face, been told, quote, you can preach to me about anything you want except my money. And I've been told that multiple times. But the mandate of preaching is found in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for, for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness. All Scripture. And if something is addressed in Scripture, then this pulpit ought to reflect that. And certainly no part of our lives is completely above any sort of accountability because every part of life is addressed in the Bible. But preaching about money isn't really about money at all. Really what we're talking about here is what we might call a spiritual EKG to check your heart because it is a heart check. And I'm hopeful, very hopeful that in our our Joyful Generosity campaign, we raise enough capital to make some serious steps forward in a new facility. But that's not my main goal. We could just as easily be having a campaign for marriages, a campaign for parenting, a campaign for evangelism, a campaign for being godly workers in the workplace. We could do any of that we just happen to be choosing giving as our heart check because how you think about money tells us where your heart is it really does and I've noticed over the years that the more mature and deep a believer is in the Lord Jesus Christ that not only do they tolerate sermons about giving they're excited about them because it's like going to the doctor and the doctor saying you are in perfect health that feels good and so this is a checkup for us so for my part i will never apologize for preaching about giving any more than i would apologize for preaching christ and we preach giving all the time the fact that christ gave his life for you so we would never apologize for preaching the word but there are definitely misunderstandings that have been traditionally perpetuated in the church and probably the biggest misunderstanding occurs because of not understanding the covenants of Scripture. We, we talk about covenant here all the time. Jews, under the covenant that God made with Israel, it's, it's famously called the Mosaic Covenant, more accurately called the Israelite Covenant. But this covenant is called in the New Testament the Old Covenant as compared to what? To the New Covenant. And in the Old Covenant, the faithful Jews were mandated to support the theocratic priestly government of By giving 10% of their income, 10% of their produce, two times a year, and another 10% every third year for an average of 23 and a third percent of their income. In the Old Testament, this is called the tithe, the tenth. They were also to give separate free will offerings as thanksgiving and, and for other reasons. But we're not under the Old Covenant. We're under the New Covenant. And I'm going to speak extensively about that this evening, in fact. We don't live in a theocratic government. We now, to support the God mandated government, we're not called to tithe, we're called to pay taxes. Romans 13. It's the same purpose. But beyond that, we are called to generously support the work of the preaching of the gospel on earth jesus was supported by the gifts of his followers the apostles were supported by the gifts of the jerusalem church the very first church building known that was built specifically to worship christ was built in about 250 a.d it was built by the donations of local believers first timothy 5 makes it very clear that we're to generously support the preached word the work of the kingdom and so frankly i don't need the old testament to make a case for new covenant giving But we will use the Old Testament because there are many principles that we can apply. But I will try to stay away from the term tithing for two reasons. First of all, because it implies a mandated percentage, which is not found in Scripture. You have to understand that. The tithe was a tax. It was not a free will offering. And so we're going to stay away from the tithe because there's no mandated percentage. The second reason we'll stay away from it is because we're not under the old covenant. We celebrate the new covenant, which is in the blood of Christ. When we take the Lord's table, we say that that this is the cup, which the Lord gave the cup of the new covenant. And so we'll try to be as accurate as we can. So if you feel very, very strongly that you should tithe, We are more than happy to accept 23 and a third percent of your income. If you want to be legalistic, we'll take it. That's fine. But we do want to be accurate. One of my favorite pastors of all time discipled me, in fact, for a period of time. He simply said, you just give as much as Christ has given to you and everybody will be happy. So, now that this frequent misunderstanding is cleared up, we can, however, take a universal principle from the saints of the Old Testament a principle of giving and worship. Because of the sacrificial system, because of the high value that was placed on the privilege to come to the temple and to worship God, quite frankly, an Old Testament Jew wouldn't even think of coming to the temple without bringing a gift, without bringing something. To worship God costs something because god was sparing your life as a sinner and allowing you to bask in his glory and in his forgiveness now our access to god has been granted by the sacrifice of christ we understand that but that does not mean that worshiping god is free i've known believers that won't go as a guest to a friend's home without bringing a gift but they'll come to church for years without bringing a nickel and that's not right The Old Testament saint didn't come as a guest to the house of the Lord without bringing a gift. They just didn't. And yet, in the church of Jesus Christ, people decide not to sacrifice anything and yet still take advantage of the resources and the fellowship and the spiritual nourishment and the facility that others pay for. You'd never go to a restaurant and eat a giant 16 ounce steak and potatoes and a piece of pie and 15 refills of iced tea like I get. And then as you're walking out, just hand the check to the guy in the next table. You'd never do that. So we don't want to do that here. We share in the, in the effort of giving. So giving and worship go hand in hand, which is one of the reasons that even in the age of electronic money transfer, we still pass a, an offering bag. Why? Because you bring something physical to give to the Lord. And that's what we want to do. Some of you have told me that that your giving check is the only check you write anymore. Everything else is electronic. But we bring our offering to the Lord. But that brings me to examine the cynicism that has really I think, successfully been sown into the fabric of Christ's church concerning giving. I've read a number of studies about this over the years and made my own observations over a couple of decades in pastoral ministry, and I want to just kind of give you a list of reasons that some people are cynical about giving, and you might be on this list, so hopefully we can address this with you. The first reason is an assumption that it means a church or a pastor is greedy, an assumption of greed. Now, certainly, elders are to guard against greed as, as commanded in Scripture, but greed isn't about an abundance of money or an abundance of resources. Greed is an attitude of worshiping money. In fact, a dirt-poor person can be one of the greediest people on earth because of their heart attitude. Now, to be fair, I think the assumption of greed generally is held by unbelievers who attend church. I think that's generally in their camp. Another reason For cynicism that the church should just do without a belief that the church should just do without I would agree that we ought to use every penny as wisely as we can but I think this betrays an attitude of I'm more important than kingdom work that really says I am the focus of my life and again I think that attitude is most often perpetuated by the unregenerate now another reason for cynicism and you've probably felt this one is that we've felt burned by the prosperity gospel we felt burned by the prosperity gospel. I know people in this room and myself included as a teenager that sat down and wrote a check to some ministry that promised money if you from God if you sent them money. And that burns you because as you grow in the Lord, you understand this is the prosperity gospel, which is not about prospering you. It's about prospering the person who wants to prosper you. And so it's not a gospel at all and it burns us to see a a supposed minister of the gospel raking in millions of dollars per year in the name of telling people God wants them to be rich. But what really burns me is that it has created a negative association with the godly and perfect scriptures about giving. And now i can't hardly preach from second corinthians chapter nine without some of you thinking about the prosperity of the gospel preachers that have abused those scriptures so we felt burned another reason for cynicism a lack of understanding that giving is an act of worship which is commanded in scripture ask the average american church attender what is worship and they're going to say singing songs that we have worship and then we have preaching. Frankly, I resent that because preaching is part of worship. But but worship encompasses all of life, everything. It is an act of worship to love your wife. It is an act of worship to honor your husband. It is an act of worship to raise your children to know the gospel. It is an act of worship to, to be a good worker. It is an act of worship to pay your taxes. And it is an act of worship to give to the Lord's work. Another reason for cynicism is fear that I won't have enough if I give. Fear that I, I I won't be provided for. When money is tight, it can be very hard to give. And something occurred to me, we've said this a, a number of times, we, we've often said, because 2 Corinthians 9 very clearly promises that if you give even a little bit, the Lord sees that as a seed and from that seed he will return to you the resources you need to continue to give. And so we've said well, just give a dollar if that's all you can do. And it occurred to me that our elders at the end of every year send out a giving report to you and you don't want to get a giving report that says 12 bucks on it. And I understand that. So maybe give it all at the end of the year, like a year-end $12 gift or something. And so there is that fear. I'm going to preach an entire message on God's provision for you, because I want you to be encouraged that you will have every meal that you need until you go home, I promise. No Christian has arrived in heaven and the Lord's saying, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here yet. Well, I starved to death. Oh, we forgot about you. That's never happened. The Lord will provide for you. Another reason for cynicism is not placing a value on the preached word and on evangelism not placing value on the preached word and evangelism. You know, I've noticed the more mature that a saint is, the more I've observed an urgency and a responsibility to be a major part of seeing the word of God proclaimed. I think a simple question is this, how much is a human soul worth? How much is a human soul worth? It's infinite. And and the believer who is sat under expository preaching understands that you get what you pay for if you want shallow saturday night saturday night messages from a part-time pastor then don't give much but if you want men who literally spend their lives before god and in his word to come before you and say thus says the lord from his word then give to that another reason for cynicism is a shallow understanding of the gospel a shallow understanding of the gospel, those with deep roots sunk down into the doctrines of grace and being watered by these glorious doctrines of regeneration and justification and sanctification and glorification, they tend to be generous. You want to know why? Because they're saturated in the generosity of God. And they see what they've been given in great detail, and it urges them to return that kindness. But in my experience... The top reason, the number one reason about cynicism toward giving, and that's the focus of our rest of our time today, number one reason is a belief that I own anything. The belief that I own anything, that my money is mine. The person who comes to me and says, you can preach to me about anything except my money, I always say that word is where you're going wrong. It's not your money. It's not yours. So to start us talking about giving, we have to begin by realigning our view of what we actually own. And to do that, we start with a foundation of theology proper, the study of God, his character to put giving into its proper perspective. Because if we just say we should give to support the ministry of the church, we're starting at the finish line. That's the finish line. The starting line is sound theology and an understanding of God. So this morning, we'll look at our first reason to give, give because of god's ownership give because of god's ownership and to help us do this we're going to do a kind of a flyover survey of two different psalms beginning with psalm 24 and we'll just divide this into two different thoughts this morning we'll just call this two different factors concerning god that help us have a right view of giving and so we'll call these god's privilege and god's promise two factors about god to help us have a right view of giving god's privilege. And God's promise the first factor is found in Psalm 24 God's privilege what is God's privilege what is his divine right well we'll work our way toward the answer to that question Psalm 24 divides very easily into into some clear sections verses 3 through 6 is a section that we could call all holy God all holy God and it begins with a question of worship psalm 23 psalm 24 rather verse 3 who shall ascend the hill of the lord and who shall stand in his holy place this speaks of coming to the temple on the hill of the lord standing in the place where he meets with the faithful and the question is who gets to do this who's qualified who is fit who is able to worship now you might say everyone is welcome verse 4 doesn't say that it has a very sobering answer a difficult answer verse 4 answers the question he who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully and so here's the qualification you must have clean hands it means that you are righteous in your outward behavior the things you do you must have a pure heart you have you're righteous in your inner soul you you're undefiled with sinful thoughts you are wholly devoted to the lord and you must have no idolatry no idolatry to to lift up your soul to what is false it, it speaks of having love or loyalty to anything above the lord to swear deceitfully speaks of placing a higher allegiance to a false god to believe in the value of something above god and the person who will do these things is now fit to worship God to receive his blessing verse 5 he will receive blessing from the lord and righteousness from the god of salvation now i don't know about you but i see a problem here and the problem is is if those are the requirements to be allowed the privilege to worship God then we're doomed and we can't approach God you want to know why Because you do not have clean hands, you do not have pure hearts, and you certainly have not kept yourself from idolatry of the heart. So how can you be qualified? Well, our only hope of being qualified, of being fit, of being able to be a worshiper is to have someone who is qualified stand in our place. And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ was made to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 And now through and in Christ a person can be a true worshiper. Not violating the pure holiness of God. And those of genuine faith can enjoy open fellowship with the Lord. In verse 6 this open fellowship is described. Such as the generation of those who seek him. Who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And so in that section, we see this all holy God who demands holiness of mankind. Still doesn't tell us what God's privilege is. We'll keep working our way towards it. Another section we could call the all victorious God. The all victorious God. Here we see a picture of God entering into a city after having conquered his enemies, after having won a great battle and gained all kinds of glory for himself. Verse 7 Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Verse 7 gives a personification of the gates the doors it it makes them come alive it it says all of you gates open prepare for the king of glory to come in verse eight the king of glory is mighty in battle he's conquered his enemies in verse 10 identifies the king of glory god himself the lord of hosts literally the lord of armies now to the israelite reading this and it's interesting that this psalm is written by david This section would be extremely reminiscent of one of the most important events in all of Israel's history, and that was the day that David brought the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence, into Jerusalem after having conquered his enemies, and symbolically with this Ark coming into Jerusalem, God was coming through the gates. And so for the Israelite reading this, this makes perfect sense to them. But as New Testament believers, we have an added layer of understanding, an added layer of revelation. We see a messianic flavor to this because someday the King of glory, Jesus Christ, he will have conquered his enemies. He will have defeated those who were against him. He will take hold of the earth and he will sit on the throne in Jerusalem. In fact, Revelation 19 verse 15 speaks of Christ coming to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. So we have an all-holy God, we have an all-victorious God who demands submission to himself as king of the earth. But why does God have the right to demand holiness and to demand submission? Why does he have that right? Well, mankind was made perfectly. The earth was made perfectly. And yet because of sin, the creation is now tainted. Man has rebelled against God And so God's holiness has been violated. And as part of this rebellion, God has allowed Satan for a time to be the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world, and he's led humanity in countless ways to rebel and to to be unregenerate in countless, uh, just unfathomable sins against God. And so not only are we seeing God's holiness violated, we're seeing his right to rule violated. And so God is coming to take the earth to be king of glory. So the question is, what gives God the right to demand holiness? What gives God the right to take the earth, to rule it, to invade it? As Zechariah 14 and Revelation 19 picture. Well, the answer is found in verses 1 and 2, and this is God's privilege. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers the the verse one says the earth is the lord and the fullness thereof it's the idea of the earth is the lord and everything that's in it everything that fills it anything on the earth is the lord's and there's a parallel construction to make sure we get the point the world and all who dwell therein Verse 2 references the dry land coming up from the waters. This is God's creation, his creative power. So what is the privilege that God possesses? It's the fact that he owns everything and therefore he has total rights over everything. He has the right to graciously offer salvation to some. He has the right to cast people who reject him into the lake of fire. He has the right to rule what he's created and he certainly has the right to take back what is his He has the right to kill. He has the right to give life. You don't have any rights. You are the created. Only the creator has all the rights. And listen, the implications of of God's ownership are endless. I mean, we could preach a whole series just on God's ownership. A woman cannot abort her unborn baby in the name of her right to her own body because neither her body nor her baby's body are owned by her. They're owned by God. You don't have a right to redefine or to destroy your marriage because marriage was invented by God. You don't have a right to redefine your gender because gender was created by God. You don't have a right to compare your will with God's will. He owns you. You don't have a right, in fact, to reject Christ. You don't have the right to reject Christ. Did you know that? Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. This isn't a suggestion. These are imperative Greek forms, meaning Greek verbs, meaning it's a command. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. Second Thessalonians 1 8 says that God will inflict vengeance on all who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. You don't even have the right to reject the gospel. John twenty one records that Jesus told Peter that Peter would die by crucifixion in later years and this didn't sit too well with Peter. He wasn't happy about this. And instead of questioning that, he looked over at his buddy John and pointed at him and said, well, what about him? You know, maybe if he's going to die a horrible death too, then I'll feel a little bit better. I think is the idea there. And Jesus rebuked Peter. He said in John 21, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, that's not your business. Do what you're told because I own you. Romans 6, verse 16 says, you are the slaves of the one you obey. You're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. You're either a slave of God or you're a slave of iniquity. Now, the idea of a slave in the Bible is misunderstood if it's interpreted through the eyes of historic European and American slavery. That's not the idea. The bigger idea of slavery in the Bible has to do with ownership very often in the Bible, it meant job security, a house, a paycheck, a retirement plan, and so forth. But the point of Romans 6 saying that you're a slave of, of the one you obey is that God owns everything. He owns it all. And put it this way God has loaned you some clothes to wear, and we're all happy for that. God has loaned you some air to breathe. Whose heir is it? God has loaned you some food to eat. He's loaned you some water to drink. He's loaned you a wife. He's loaned you a husband. He's loaned you your children. He's loaned you a place to live. He's loaned you the intelligence and skill to earn money, and He's loaned you the money itself. So we have to get the notion out of our heads and out of our hearts that anything we have belongs to us. It does not. None of it is yours. And everything we've been loaned is expected to be used to the glory of God. The husband that God has loaned you, God's expectation is that you will respect him and honor him and not degrade him. The wife that God has loaned you, his expectation is that you will love her and cherish her and protect her. The children God has loaned you, his expectation is that you will raise them to know the gospel and to obey their parents. The church family that God has loaned you, his expectation is that you be a faithful and humble church member submissive to the leadership as commanded in scripture and the money God has loaned you his expectation is that you use it for kingdom purposes which of course includes supporting your family but the larger purposes of the kingdom as well 1st Timothy 6 the apostle Paul commands as for the rich in this present age they are to do good to be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share so the question is not In our joyful generosity campaign, how much of my money should I give? The question is, how much of the Lord's money should I return to him? Jesus said very famously, Matthew 6, "...do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal." our beloved John MacArthur commented on this. He said, our treasures upon earth and our treasures in heaven can involve money and other material things. Possessions that are wisely, lovingly, willingly, and generously used for kingdom purposes can be a means of accumulating heavenly possession. That's really true. A.W. Tozer pointed out, money can be transmuted into everlasting treasure. Any temporal possession can be turned into everlasting wealth. Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. So what is God's privilege? He owns everything, and therefore he has rights over everything. Another factor concerning God to help us have a right view of giving, we've looked at God's privilege. Let's look at God's promise. God's promise, and to do that, we want to look at Psalm 50. Turn with me a few pages over to Psalm 50. And this psalm contains one of the most well-known verses about God's ownership in the Bible. It's often quoted to give comfort when we're in material need. And we'll just start there for a moment. Psalm 50, verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. And this is true. It does give us comfort when we're in need of God's provision. We're reminded that he owns everything but was that really the point of that verse? Well, we'll see in just a minute. So let's just kind of touch the mountain peaks of this psalm to see what God's promise is and how that applies to our particular focus this morning. And we'll just walk through this psalm. It's a, it's a, it has a very logical progression to it. And the argument that God makes here is, is easy to understand. The first six verses describe a heavenly courtroom scene. And in this courtroom scene, in in the throne room of heaven, God is presiding. He's about to render judgment. And in verses 1 and 2, he is summoning his people of Israel to appear before God. Verses 1 and 2, here's the summons A psalm of Asaph. The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. And then we get a repeated summons and an affirmation of the right to judge that God possesses that now court is brought to order. In verse 3, our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. So, court is in session. Those that are on trial, that is Israel, have been brought before the judge. And he's going to give judgment and correction and reproof. He, he, first of all, God gives his qualification to be judge, to be the not only the judge, but the witness against them. Verse 7, he says, hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. Here's his qualification. I am God, your God not just God in general, I am your God. In other words, I am the God that you signed on the dotted line that you said, I will serve you, I will be faithful to you, I will obey your laws, I will love you with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my might. And you violated that. And so he has the right now to come before them as judge. the first thing he tells them is what they're not there for. What what he's not condemning them for in verse 8... Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. Israel is maintaining the sacrificial system. They are performing their acts of worship. They're keeping the holy days, the feasts, the sacrifices. They're doing it all. But they were treating God like a Canaanite pagan deity. You know how they were doing that? They were coming to sacrifice with the attitude of we must feed our deity. We must provide for our deity. He has needs that we have to provide for. That's a pagan attitude. That's the, that's the attitude that the that the Canaanites would have toward their gods. In other words, there's a heart attitude of hypocrisy of I'm bringing this sacrifice because God needs it. And I'm providing for him. I'm doing something that, that's making him happy. As if they're doing God favors. And So God reminds them that he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need them. He doesn't need the domestic animals, for example, being raised by the Israelites. Verse 9, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. It's not that every time somebody came and sacrificed a bull, God says, oh, thank you. I really needed that. Why? Because he already owns every animal. Verse 10, in context now, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. Uh, Verse 10 is not meant as an encouragement that God will provide for his people. It's meant as a rebuke because the people have acted like they actually owned anything when they don't. He says, Why do you think you're doing me favors? I already own that bull you're bringing. I already own that goat. I already own the cattle on a thousand hills. I own the hills. I own the mountains that the hills are set in. I own the the continent that the mountains are on. I own the earth that the continents are on. And I own the universe that the earth is in. Any questions? So you bring me a goat and say you should be thankful for this? And then he says something that really kind of borders on being humorous. In verse 12, If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are, are mine. Even if I did get hungry... I wouldn't tell you I don't need your help. I can eat anything if I was hungry. I don't need you to bring me food. And so now under the category of God doesn't need your money, verse 13, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? His people were acting like he was dependent on them. And in fact, the sacrificial system is just the opposite. It's meant to show that we're dependent on you. Not the other way around. This has been almost humorous to a certain degree, but now God turns up the heat. And he goes from really a fairly mild correction to a serious indictment of false believers, of those with a fraudulent faith. In our day, we would call them the, the, the tares among the wheat, those church attenders who come and who are false and who don't know Christ. Verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? And he challenges their right to associate themselves with God's covenant people. And then he gives examples. And and the basic lesson here is that people of true faith act in righteousness and in purity and in, in absolute devotion to the Lord. Here are his examples. First, you ignored God's instruction. Verse 17, for you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. Second example, you approved of sin. You approved of sin. Verse 18, if you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. The third example of their unfaithfulness, you sin greatly with your tongues. You sin greatly with your tongues. Verse 19, you give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. A fourth example, you gossip and you slander Verse 20, you sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. And worst of all, he condemns them for having a low view of God. And he says, basically, you think I'm just like you. Verse 21, these things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and I lay the charge before you. So, he condemns the false believers. They ignore God's instruction. They approve of sin. They sin greatly with their tongues. They gossip and they slander, and they think that they're equal to God. So, here's God's promise it's a twofold promise. It is a gospel call, it is the choice of a lifetime, it is really the choice of eternity. And he makes this twofold promise to the one with false faith and then to the one with true faith. The promise to the one with false faith is found in verse 22 mark this then you who forget God lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver if they don't repent if they don't have a humble and a contrite heart which heeds the true purposes of the sacrifices the sacrifices are because we're dependent on God to forgive us of sin that sin will be reckoned with It will be dealt with. He will tear them apart. It's a Hebrew verb form that means he will do it over and over and over again. In other words, he's promising eternal damnation to those who will continue to give sacrifices with a hypocritical heart. But then the second part of the twofold promise is to those with true faith. True faith, verse 23, the one who offers sacrifices, offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice, glorifies me To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This is the one who's thankful for the mercy and the grace and the kindness and the goodness of God to forgive. And instinctively, he wants to obey God. And this is such a wonderful phrase. The one who orders his way rightly. To this one, salvation will be given because his faith was genuine. It was real. It was internal. Now, We don't want to misunderstand this whole psalm. God is not saying, stop giving your sacrifices to me since I don't need them. That's not what he's saying. He tells them what the faithful do. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. Offer, literally, slaughter to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. And you shall glorify me. Slaughter to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. This doesn't mean come say thank you. It means bring the prescribed sacrifices to the Lord. But with a true internal reality of thankfulness, he says perform your vows. Meaning if you say you're going to give a thank offering, give the thank offering. Do what you say you're going to do. So the basic point of this psalm is that those who, who go through the motions of worshiping God without genuine faith in the Lord, they're just incurring judgment on themselves. That's all they're doing. But that those with genuine faith ought to sacrifice with thankfulness and gratitude. So now we're informed by God's privilege that he owns everything. We're informed by God's promise that he will judge the false believer and reward the true believer who sacrifices with a faithful heart. My hope and prayer is that God has become bigger and you've become smaller. And that's a great place to be. Now, we've laid this foundation here. and I want to just drive these nails home for a couple more minutes. Because when your view of God is too small and your view of yourself and your stuff is too big, when God sort of owns everything and God is sort of concerned about your heart attitude in, in worship, then you don't really and you can't really trust him when he says... In 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. But when God is big, and when he's infinite, and when he's worthy, and when he owns everything, and he's pleased with my gift, only when it's offered in my smallness, and in my dependence, and in my humility, and in my gratitude, Now we're in a totally different place of dependence when we hear and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now we can say, oh, my heavenly father, I have a gift to bring to you. And I know that you will provide for me until that day I breathe my last and come home. So it's with joy and gratitude and thankfulness because of the blood of Christ that I bring my little bitty tiny gift. And we have total trust your view of God as being big will make the difference. The message of Psalm 50 is God saying, I don't need your stuff, I want your heart. And we tangibly show God our heart with an internal attitude accompanied by a sacrificial gift. I want to go back in time 500 years before the writing of Psalm 24 and Psalm 50. I want to go back in time to the time when God was setting up the place that he would meet with his people. First the tabernacle and then the temple. And guess what they did? They started a building campaign. And there were three steps to this building campaign. Step one, they announced the the need. Exodus 25, one, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel. Step two, they reminded them to whom they are giving that they take for me a contribution. And step three was simply to collect And God said, from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. But I want you to notice something. Was God looking for wallets or was he looking for hearts? Because we've already established that he doesn't need what we give. Well, the answer is found in in 10 chapters later in Exodus 35. You don't have to turn there. This is reiterating the call to give to this building campaign. Exodus 35, beginning in verse four, Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded Take from among you a contribution to the Lord whoever is of a generous heart. Let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze. Verse 22 says, So they came, both men and women, all who are of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And what was the attitude that these people brought with their generosity? It was a joyful attitude. It was, not to be cliche, joyful generosity. How do we know that? Because Exodus 36, verse 3 says, They received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing in free will offerings every morning. And finally, Moses had to have a big powwow and say, Stop. We have enough. We have more than enough. Because here's what they've been giving. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine twisted linen, that's like lace, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for anointing oil, fragrant incense, precious stones, and then we've already mentioned the brooches, the earrings, the signet rings, and the armlets, all of gold. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm trying to do my history lesson here and think that a few months earlier, this whole nation, they were a nation of slaves. And here they are. Where on earth did they get this fortune? Right before the 10th plague of the killing of the firstborn of Egypt, God had instructed Israel to go knocking on the doors of the Egyptians and ask for silver or gold. The result is found in a little tiny footnote in Exodus 12. It's just almost should be in parentheses the people of israel had also done as moses told them for they had asked the egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing and the lord had given the people favor in the sight of the egyptians so that they let them have what they asked thus they plundered the egyptians hey can you imagine this you you knock on your neighbor's door and say hi i'm your you know neighborhood jew over there i'm the slave and um you know i was just wondering could you give me all of your stuff And, oh yeah, look, here's my mother's best gold, and here's my silverware, and here's this. Wait, I think I have some money. Let me give that to you too. And wait, empty the house. Bring the furniture. Bring the clothes. Look, do you want one of my kids? No, he's Egyptian. You don't want him. And they're all going door door to door and coming away with, with stuff. They were wealthy. Why? Because God was going to build a place for himself to be glorified they plundered the Egyptians. Before they ever knew that they would be building a place of worship God provided for them. He did the ancient Near East version of a wire transfer from Egypt to Israel. Why? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein. Listen, God will always finance his own glory. He will always finance his own glory. He will always provide for his name to be lifted up. Some of you are professional investors and you work to put the money your clients entrust to you in the best possible investment because the money is not yours. You're simply charged with bringing the greatest return in investment you possibly can. And if you invest well, your clients tend to bring you more money to invest. And in actuality, every one of you as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are investors. God has portioned to us some of his resources and he expects us to invest them wisely. The chief investment, of course, is in our families and providing for the needs of our household. But he expects and commands that we will invest in the kingdom. And that investment, that yield on that return is immeasurable because the return on investment isn't measured in dollars. It's measured in souls. It's measured in souls. Kingdom citizens one to faith in Christ who will worship God for all eternity. It wouldn't surprise me at all if in heaven the Lord would say, here are the people that the money that you gave brought to heaven. Won't that be great? So it is our aim to get into a facility that will better meet our desire to proclaim the gospel of Christ. There will be unbelievers who come to the new facility and they will come to faith in Christ and we will see them for all eternity in heaven. That's a worthy investment. That's a worthy use of all that God owns. March 10th, Is Commitment Sunday when we'll bring our commitment cards and a generous one-time gift to to get this campaign kicked off. Um, In our family, we've been talking about Commitment Sunday for quite a while already. We're anticipating it greatly. I hope you'll do the same because God owns it all anyway. There's one group that I I must address, especially in the Sermon on Giving. If you're uncertain, if you've come to faith in Christ and you don't know if your sins are forgiven, save your time, save your money. Don't give it because God neither needs nor wants your money. In fact, you'll just incur his wrath even at an even greater rate. He doesn't want your money. He wants your repentance. He wants to adopt you. He wants you to be his child. He doesn't want your wallet. He wants you. So if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only giving you should be thinking about is giving your life to the Lord because he gave his life for you to pay the sin debt that you owe to God. Because God is absolutely furious with you. He is furious with your sin because you are unholy and he is holy. But he's graciously offered to pour all of his fury and all of his wrath and all of his anger onto Christ and none of it onto you. And to pour onto you only love and grace, mercy and kindness and goodness. So come to the cross. Receive what God would give to you That is forgiveness in life. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much this morning. We are reminded that you own it all. We are also reminded that Jesus paid it all. And that all that we have is because of your graciousness and goodness. Even the unbeliever unknowingly breathes your air, eats your food, drinks your water, walks on your earth, interacts with your people, enjoys the blessings of The earth, stealing them from you every day with a lack of gratitude. And so instead, Lord, we would want to be those that are thankful not only for the material blessings you've given us, but much more for the spiritual blessing of Christ, for the cross, for providing salvation for us before we ever knew we needed it. And so this morning, we would pray first of all, Lord, for the believers among us. We pray that they would be faithful in their giving because it is a, a, a heart check on where their heart is, and we pray, Lord, for those who may not know Christ, perhaps they've heard the gospel numbers of times and have re- resisted, perhaps they' have been self-deceived, or perhaps they know that they are not in Christ. But we would pray that this very day that they would, since they have nothing to give, would only receive and receive the grace and the forgiveness so freely offered by Christ because of his blood, because of his death on the cross. We pray that you would be honored in our lives. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.